RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. And welcome to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm Abby, your nurse host, and today I interviewed Dr. Stephen Bradley. He is an anesthesiologist, he's a musician, he's in the Navy. Um, he is just all around amazing. And he also is interested in this, um, humanitarian aid effort. He was on the USS comfort. Um, he is just a pleasure to talk to. He also has his own podcast, the black doctors podcast, which highlights minority professionals and tells their story, which is a great platform. And I, I just personally love his podcast and that's why I asked him to come on because, Um, it's probably my favorite podcast right now. Um, even though I just started a podcast, I think I like his the best. So anyway, subscribe to this one, subscribe to his, the black doctors podcast. And here we go. First of all, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thanks so much for having me on, Abby. Happy to be here. First things first, I just want to say that you have your own podcast, the Black Doctor Podcast, right? I do. Yeah, it's been uh, just finished this first season. It started over the summer, and I just look at the lives of different uh, minority healthcare professionals and and hopefully um, add some inspiration to students of color who are looking into becoming healthcare professionals or don't even know that you know that's an option for them. So just kind of trying to gain exposure to the fields. I've listened to about half of the first season and I love it so far. What was the reason why you started it? In part, some struggles that I had with imposter syndrome and not thinking I was adequate or good enough. And as I talked to other colleagues and heard their stories about what they came from and the environments that they grew up in and the struggles they overcame, I was inspired by that. And I really wanted to be able to bottle that up and have other people uh, be able to learn from those stories and be inspired by them. And I know with social media, like a lot of stuff can get kind of lost in the shuffle if it's not a glamorous picture or something that's really flashy, you know? So I wanted a forum that has some staying power that people can go back to and access. And, you know, if somebody knows somebody that needs that extra push or is in a similar situation, they can refer them to that episode and they could hear from somebody like themselves who's dealing with issues that they are dealing with. I love the logo. I heard you talking about somebody <laughs> said something bad about the logo. Is that true? Yeah. So the logo, I, you know, it was like the Black Doctors podcast and I wrote it out and I had this like thing in my head about what I wanted to look like. And yeah. I made a little video and then my girlfriend, some of my friends are like, Oh, it looks so bad. Uh, Cause it's all like this chicken scratch uh, hand drawing. Uh, so, you know, I made, I got, 
one of my buddies to kind of make it look a little nicer and that'll come out sometime soon with the next season. Okay. Well, for the record, I like the first one and I think they just don't get it. <laughs> um, okay. So how much time do you usually spend on your podcast? Oh, wow. So each episode, um, you know, usually I record for 30 to 45 minutes. I'm trying to do 30 to 35 minute episodes. And the post-production is what takes a while, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I know we've talked about this, but it could take probably an hour to an hour and a half per episode. Um, I go back and try and clean up all the ums and, uh, and I, I try to take out a lot of that for both my um, guests as well as myself. I right. mean, usually I'm spending most time cleaning up my own. Um, <laughs> Like that, we can edit that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and after I do that, I go back and and fiddle around with the, the EQ and try and make it sound really good. I know the first like episode or two where I was still learning how to how to do the post production editing, the sound was a little off, and I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. And now I think I'd like to think it's gotten better, um, but it takes about an hour to an hour and a half to edit an episode. You're you're fast, actually. It takes me so much longer. <laughs> <laughs> you're fast. I am like, I spend like a half a day, depending if there, especially oh, no. if there's three guests. I spend oh, hours. Yeah. Oh my god! Because, like you're saying, I mean, I want to make everybody sound as clear and as concise mm -hmm. as possible. So I'm trying to edit out like everything except except for right before they speak. Yeah, my secret is I don't say much on my podcast. Like I think probably 80% of it is my guests speaking. Uh -huh. So I don't have like, it cuts down on how much I have to edit. Uh, it's a little cheap trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but three guests, like having to edit, I haven't had, had to do that yet. I'm going to have to do it for an upcoming episode. And I've been dreading that. Yeah, it's so annoying. Um, the, what my trick a little bit is because I, oh my God, once you have a podcast, you realize how annoying your own voice is too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like yes. I started realizing that I'm like a really overactive listener. Like anything somebody says, I'm like, uh-huh, yeah. Like, <laughs> so I just started to just edit out the whole chunk of while the person's talking, like my whole track is gone. Cause I'm just like, everything yeah. I'm saying is not essential. <laughs> yeah. My thing is I'm always like, oh, wow. After, after they say whatever they said, wow. I'm wow. Like, God. How many times did I say wow in one episode? Exactly. Mine's yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the whole thing, like the Midwest accent comes out hard when I'm interviewing. <laughs> where, where are you from? I'm from Michigan originally. I've lived in oh, New York okay. since like 2013. I was going to say, you do have a Midwest accent. I was in Chicago for residency. So oh, really? uh, quite familiar oh. with the, the Midwest and the Midwest accent. Oh, my God. Chicago's awesome. I love it there. So much fun. So um, I guess tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, I, I listened to your first few episodes, so I kind of I got the gist. But for anybody who hasn't listened. Yeah. So I grew up a Navy brat. My parents met in college. Uh, they were first generation college students. They met at Florida State University, got married. The rest is history. But my dad uh, accepted a commission into the United States Navy once he was coming out of college. So I grew up in, in a Navy family, a Navy brat which that means every three to four years, uh, active duty service members usually uh, move to a different duty station. So we moved around a lot. So my home is kind of up and down the East Coast. My dad retired in Florida. So that's where I was for high school and for college. And after college, that's when I kind of realized I wanted to go into medicine. I completed a post-bac program in Tampa at the University of South Florida. 
and then I matriculated to Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. It's a historically black uh, college or university, so it has a very rich history and legacy. And after medical school, I proceeded on to the University of Chicago for four years of anesthesia residency. I think the most interesting thing about my background is just the diversity I was able to experience. I actually went to a religious school for undergrad. I was going to be a, a pastor for a little bit. I was going to go into the ministry um, for like a year that lasted. Um, so I, I was went to a religious school, and then I went to a state school for the master's program, then I went to a historically black university for medical school, and then um, I guess I think University of Chicago is like almost Ivy League. I don't know if they are or not. Sorry, people from University of Chicago don't send me an email. Uh, but, you know, kind of a prestigious private school. So I've been able to dabble in all these different forms of education, a very religious background and upbringing, and then I've been kind of uh, more open-minded over the, the years. And it's culminated in me pursuing a, a ethics fellowship at the University of Chicago. They have the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. And my last year of residency, I completed that concurrently with the anesthesia residency. And it's a full year where we spend you know, four weeks in the beginning every, sorry, every day. Um, it's a full year program where we spend the first four weeks attending lectures from philosoph uh, philosophers and psychiatrists, psychologists, lawyers, um, parishioners. And the group itself was very heterogeneous. It had physicians, physical therapists, nurses, social workers, and we all just kind of learned from each other and learn how to tackle different ethical dilemmas that we see in medicine. We would have weekly grand rounds where different groups would come. So there would be the surgical grand rounds and the surgeons would be like, this is what we do in this case. And then the medicine folks were like, oh, you're crazy. And then the peds folks would be like, oh yeah, this is, you know, this pediatric case. And the surgeons were like, what's wrong with you guys? Like, it was just amazing to see the different cultures collide. And then we would navigate to kind of what the best options were and incorporate all those different ethical values and, and tenets and social cues and cultures. And so I think that's where my background kind of uh, coalesces into where I am now. And I'm able to use all those different experiences and how I relate and interact with people. Uh, but in addition to, I guess, the rest of my background, I did um, follow my dad's footsteps into the military. So during residency, I accepted a commission and a little bit of scholarship money. So I'm in the Navy. I'm an active duty Naval officer. And I've been in for two years. And I have a four-year total commitment with that. Um, so that's, that's my whole background. Wow, that's so interesting. So first of all, why anesthesia? Why did you pick? Yeah, so in medical school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. When I first got there, then I met all the other orthopedic surgeon types and it was like, that's not for me. And I kind of floundered around for the first two years, wasn't really sure. And I had a really good friend who was super gung-ho about anesthesia. I had got my board scores and I was in within the limits of uh, being able to match an anesthesia. And the third thing that happened was being in DC, the American Society of Anesthesiologists had their national conference that year, right down the street from my, my apartment. So I was able to go and attend that. And I kind of made that a plan B as I went into my third year of medical school. And I was gonna see what else I liked, but I had anesthesia as a plan B. I was starting to develop some uh, connections in that field. And as it happened, I didn't really fall in love with anything. Actually, I did fall in love with surgery. I wanted to do trauma surgery. I loved working in a surgical ICU. 
I love the critical care. I love the complexity of the patients. And I remember one Saturday I was in the OR with one of the trauma surgery attendings and she was, well, she was taking out a gallbladder. I was holding the camera and I realized like, oh my God, I hate operating. I hate the <laughs> OR. I hate, like if I had to do appies and gallbladders to make a paycheck, like I would hate my life. Uh-huh. So I sat down and talked with her and thank God, you know, she was very nice and sweet and understanding. And she said, you know, you can get to ICU from anesthesia, from internal medicine. There's all these other options. And when I found that out, you know, I was kind of still the deal for anesthesia. And that's also why I went to the University of Chicago, because they have a really robust ICU program. How does it work with the Navy? So if you're active duty now, you work directly for them or how does that work? Under the Navy, as I was coming out of residency, I had to email the Navy and be like, hey, I want to do an ICU fellowship. Then the Navy's like, no, we don't need additional ICU doctors at this time. So just report, they sent me orders. So my duty station and orders are to go to this military hospital in Virginia. Um, there are multiple, they're called military treatment facilities. The large ones are in DC, Virginia, and uh, San Diego, the three largest. And those are would be our like academic hospitals. Mm-hmm. And then other bases have smaller hospitals, so like the Navy base in Jacksonville has a Naval Hospital, Pensacola, um, all these smaller outlying Naval hospitals. And some hospitals have full surgical services, which would need spots for anesthesiologists and surgeons and CRNAs. And then some hospitals are smaller and more of a clinic and primary care type thing, and they wouldn't have billets or they wouldn't have assignments there. So when you, I come on active duty, they tell me where I'm going. It's a hospital with OR services. And thankfully, it's one of the big three for the Navy. So I'm at the teaching hospital that's here in Virginia. Um, but I work full time on active duty. What that means is day to day during the week, I come in and do anesthesia. Like today, I'm going in at four, so I'm working overnight. And every day I have a schedule um, to work in anesthesia, whether I'm doing nerve blocks or general anesthesia or OR coordinator. And then as deployments come up, we get pulled and assigned to those different deployments. So last year, I had like a month's heads up. Uh, Well, I guess one of the coolest things I did was last year in the spring, the anesthesiologist down in Cuba and Guantanamo Bay needed to come back for a month of uh, leave or vacation and take his boards. So I flew down to Cuba for a month and I was down there practicing anesthesia at the hospital and backfilling for him. And then I went back to Virginia and then like two weeks later found out that the hospital ship was going out on a six month humanitarian aid mission. (laughs) And I was assigned to that. So then I had like a month to get ready and then went out for six months. And I came back in November and then just went back to work at the military hospital. I didn't know that they did humanitarian aid. Um, is Is that normal? Is that something you do regularly? There's two hospital ships, one on either coast, the Mercy and the Comfort. And they've been in the news with COVID response. Uh, the ships have 12 operating rooms. I mean, really they like, we only use like four or five and CT scanners and a morgue and ICUs and wards. And they've been using them a fair amount for humanitarian aid. So the mercy on the West coast will go out and they do like kind of collaboration with other host nations. It's all about building relationships with different nations. Um, I, I don't, represent the Department of Defense or the United States Navy, all that stuff. Um, But so basically a lot of it's politics and okay, we irritated our neighbors down South. So let's go out and send this 
beautiful white ship and we'll do free surgeries and help people. And, you know, it just helps foster relationships with, between countries. And um, some of it goes kind of, kind of through the State Department. That's kind of the bigger mission. But for us as physicians and nurses and corpsmen, which are um, medics, you know, we're just on the ship doing hospital stuff. Wow, that's great. Do you have a choice of what, um, if you're a part of that or if you're working at a hospital or? Yeah, there's a little choice. So every three years, that's how long the orders are for. So I'm up for orders next summer and I'll probably just stay at the hospital uh, for an extra year. And depending on where you are, so if you're stationed over in Rota, Spain or in uh, Japan, they're probably not going to pull you for a humanitarian aid mission or a deployment to Iraq or Afghanistan because you're already kind of forward flexed. Um, but at the bigger hospitals, and especially stateside, they, you know, the hospital can function with X number of anesthesiologists and CRNAs, but the rest of us are up for whatever deployments may come. So you can kind of have a heads up of what's out there. And sometimes you can ask, I want to go boots on the ground and go to Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, you can kind of navigate a little bit as you learn more and see what's coming down the, the pipe. And then depending on what, if you don't want to deploy, then there's other ways to kind of maneuver your career. Usually not when you're junior, kind of when you're the junior guy like me, you just get sent out a lot, which is what happens. Right. Um, <laughs> but there is some options a little bit down the, down the line. Yeah. So you've been on the USS Comfort? Have I? Because <laughs> I saw yeah, the, six. I saw the picture of you with it. Yeah, I spent six months on that ship uh, last year from June. We left June 14th and got back in November. We did 600 surgeries in total. Uh, well, I guess 1,200 surgeries, but half of those were cataracts. Um, so we had three ophthalmologists. There was an ophthalmologist from the Mexican Army, and then there was two U.S. Navy and uh, ophthalmologists. So they did like 600 cataracts, and then we did... Um, a lot of general cases like hernia repairs, gallbladders. We had a plastic surgeon on board that was doing cleft lips and cleft palates. He was a, a Navy uh, plastic surgeon. And we had a plastic surgeon from, where was he from? Oh, he had an OMFS surgeon from Canada. We had a couple of different host nation or, or um, uh, far national like military folks that deployed with us. Um, uh, orthopedic surgeon from Brazil. And we all just kind of worked together to do different surgeries and treated 1,200 patients surgically. And then there was a whole medical component that would go ashore and see patients at uh, two medical sites and do medical medicine stuff. Wow, that's crazy. Um, that's so cool. I, I went to Haiti maybe like two years after the earthquake happened. Um, yeah. And I was there and um, it, it was amazing. I mean, we were like a team. We were like a little traveling team and we would, you know, go way out and then we'd come back to Port-au-Prince and we were kind of just like all over the place trying to provide um, oh, I wow. mean, pr pretty basic care, you know. Um, cause but it goes a long, a long way. It definitely does. And it was, it was really rewarding and it was amazing. So I keep, you know, it's always in the back of my head. I'm going to try to do that, you know, that kind of work again. It just, yeah. it's hard sometimes because you're working full time and, you know, it can be, it can be difficult. You have to pay a lot of times to go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one thing I hadn't really done much missions work because I hadn't felt like I could contribute much. And I was actually set up to do like my first independent, um, 
missions trip with one of my friends. She's an orthopedic surgeon and there's a women's outreach global orthopedic surgery. It's all female orthopedic surgeons and they go out and do orthopedic surgery. And I was supposed to do that with them this spring, uh, but then COVID hit. So we're all kind of, you know, picked up the pieces, but the, the comfort itself has been involved in so many different missions. Like I think they went to New York for immediately after 9-11 they were in Haiti shortly after the earthquake. They were in Puerto Rico after the hurricane. And then um, Katrina. So the, the, the copper gets tasked on short notice. So anytime there's a natural disaster. So the whole time there's hurricane season, it's on like hurricane watch and the crew can get pulled and deploy in like 48 hours to be wow. headed out. That's amazing. What, what kind of nurses are working on the comfort? Yeah, all kinds. So the Navy um, nurse corps, you know, thousands of nurses um, in the Navy, and it depends on the mission that they have. So there's like a casualty receiving area, which is the emergency department. So they have some ER nurses, they have ICU nurses, because there's three ICU bays. There are uh, med surge nurses. And the Navy kind of runs a little fast and loose. So you may be a med surge nurse. And so basically, when they went to uh, New York, it was all hands on deck. It didn't really matter what kind of nurse you were. You mm -hmm. were whatever they needed. And a lot of folks got shifted into the ICU mm -hmm. and they had like an incredible level of acuity in the, in the ICU there. Really? I didn't realize. What's that? The, yeah, that there was a high acuity. I didn't realize. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they got a lot of transfers from outside hospitals, mm -hmm. um, of really sick patients and yeah. Of non COVID is what we were told that that ship was going to be non COVID. So if we had non COVID, patients, we were to send them out and then to keep our hospital, keep the ship clean and the hospital dirty. That's what we were told. Yeah. So the, when you mix military and medicine, what happens is a lot of stuff comes down from the top and plans change on mm -hmm. like short notice. So my friend was one of the ward nurses who had like a 10 minute heads up at, Oh, we're taking COVID patients now, but that's the military. Like we, we, you just kind of deal with it and flex. So that was a plan, right? It was no COVID patients. And then if you, I was watching the the news because I was supposed to be on the ship and then I got pulled off for various reasons. The mission like changed every like 48 hours to all of a sudden they, they did. They ended up taking a lot of uh, COVID patients. Oh, I didn't realize that because the impression that we got, and I've never worked on a ship like that, but the impression that mm -hmm. we got was that if there was COVID even one COVID patient on that ship, it would just spread like wildfire. <laughs> um, okay. So tell me uh, a little bit about like your typical day. What is your day? Like you're going to work tonight. What is that like? Yeah. So tonight I'll go in, uh, the overnight shift starts at four during the week. We do 4 PM to 7 AM. And then on the weekends we do a 24 hour call if we're on. So I'll take side out and see whatever cases are still running. There'll probably be like two or three cases running late. And I'll uh, kind of check in to see where they're at. It'll be anesthesiologist or nurse anesthetist in those rooms. And after about six o'clock, I'll just take whatever comes in emergently. I'll be working with two anesthesia residents. And then there is a nurse anesthetist that's working on labor delivery. We just kind of back each other up and help each other out with cases that come up overnight. Oh, but, but for a typical week, uh, I would get the schedule the day before and see what patients I have. And go over their medical history the day before and the resident I'm working with would call and we would discuss the patient's medical history. We talk about the plan for anesthesia. There'll be a little teaching opportunity with between myself and the resident. We'll talk about, oh, what do you want to talk about tomorrow in the operating room? And then I would come in the next morning. 
our ORs start at 7.30, and then we would start doing anesthesia. During the day, uh, as time permits, then I would do some in-the-room teaching with the residents that I'm working with. Okay. And obviously, you work with a lot of, you work with OR nurses, you work with PACU nurses. What type of Yeah. So the full spectrum, like I didn't realize going into medicine, how compartmentalized hospitals were. And like, there's not just a nurse, like a Mm -hmm. nurse is not like, doesn't do everything. Mm -hmm. So there is the perioperative nurses that greet patients when they first come in at six 30 or seven, the morning of surgery, they will take their history and kind of look over them and say, Hey, you know, are they okay for surgery today? as one of you know many checks that we do before going back to the OR. So they'll get them into the correct pre-op slot in the pre-op holding area. The, we have corpsmen, which are our uh, medical techs. A lot of them will start the IVs for the patients, get them hooked up to monitors. And that's just the beginning. In the operating room itself, there is the operating room nurse or circulator and the scrub tech. So as part two of the safety check, the Circulator nurse will come out and they'll talk with the patient, you know, assess them for risk of DVTs, ask about allergies and different things. It's, you know, probably the second or third time that they've been asked and talk to them about the plan, make sure everything's squared away, consents are signed. And then the anesthesiologist or CRNA will come see the patient, you know, with their resident or SRNA. It's kind of a third check and we're doing our full exam and I'm talking to the patient about medical history, any contraindications to medications or the anesthetic plan. I'm consenting the patient, telling them what the plan is for anesthesia, answering whatever questions they may have, and have them sign a consent form. The surgeon may have already had the consent form signed when they saw them in clinic, or they may come see them the morning of to sign that consent form and to mark the patient. So there's always like between three and five checks that happen before going back to the operating room. When we get back to the operating room, this is the OR nurse's domain. Uh, the OR nurse, the scrub tech, this is, you know, the, the, the bane of all medical students' existence when you first go to the OR. And usually it's the scrub tech. I think some places there's uh, nurses that scrub as well, and they protect that sterile environment uh, with their lives. And, and <laughs> some of them are nicer than others. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's, it's that's one of the first lessons you learn is to not encroach in their territory mm-hmm. and to respect the scrub nurses. And the ultimate goal is we want to keep the patients safe. Uh, but again, it, a lot of times it's how you approach people. Definitely. I mean, I've heard that the OR nurses, even from, I have a friend who's an OR nurse and I've heard that they can be even the, not just the nurses, the scrub techs also can be very intimidating. Yes. Yeah. Very, <laughs> very intimidating. We haven't even got to the surgeons yet. Um, And a lot of it, you know, it's just the unknown. People move so quick in the OR and they say, you know, somebody's bumped into the table and they've contaminated everything and now you get to send it back and then there's delays. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's understandable. And then from the student's perspective, whether, you know, they're a new OR nurse um, or a nurse precepting or a medical student or PA or whatever, you're already, you're so preoccupied with just being in the OR, do I have the correct equipment on? Am I wearing my hat? Am I wearing my mask right? Mm-hmm. Oh man, what is the surgery again? Who's the patient? Are there allergies? What do I need to know about the anatomy? I'm about to get pimped by the attending and the residents. Yeah. Oh my God, there's four patients on the list. And you're thinking about all these things in addition to, oh man, I can't touch this blue drape. Oh my God, I think I backed into it. 
And then they're like, am I going to scrub? Am I not? They're yelling at me, wear your gloves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all this stuff that's going on in your head. You can't make heads or tails of it. Ideally, you know, you'd come in, you'd have that conversation. You'd know, am I scrubbing or not? You'd be able to pull your gloves. That's the issue. Like some places with like the nice um, scrub techs and nurses that I worked with, a lot of times they'll, they'll ask like, what, what size do you wear and pull gloves for you? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the oblivious people like walk in or scrub and they'll just like stand there with their hands dripping wet and they, you know, they, they messed up already because yeah. they just assume <laughs> that the gloves will magically appear. And I've, I've seen like the scrub tech or nurse just stare at them like, well, what are you going to do? Wear your gloves. <laughs> so then they have to like go, go back out, grab their gloves, yeah. open them, put them on the table, go back out and scrub. So that's <laughs> kind of like the initiation or hazing, but it's all comes from, um, just kind of lack of communication and mm-hmm. just being overwhelmed in a new environment. So that's that's a lot of what happens in the OR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think I've only been in the OR a handful of times and each time it was as a student and mm-hmm. it was like... It was actually the times where people were being nice and looking out for me was also the time where I felt attacked in the moment because the nurse would be like stand here don't move mm-hmm. like she you know she would be like this is your corner basically and now looking yeah. back i'm like actually she was looking out for me because if i had bumped the table it would have been like the worst thing <laughs> yeah it's like there's often not a lot a lot of time to really express the why behind it but sometimes like i mean yeah i'll talk to medical students be like hey yeah just just stand back right now don't you know it's not a good time don't come close and uh <laughs> yeah yeah you know i'm trying to i'm looking out for you little do you know yeah um, but in the or it's like the or nurses domain and the surgeon comes in depending on the hospital at a lot of private hospitals there's a very good rapport between the surgeons the circulator nurses the scrub techs and they know exactly what the surgeon wants what they need and you'll see a huge difference in how efficient the surgeries are Whereas in the teaching hospitals, you know, residents are rotating. A lot of people don't, I don't know how many people realize that residents rotate every month or two months. So every month or two months, you're literally brand new on whatever service and you're trying to learn how everything runs. So those poor circulating nurses and scrub nurses are like, you know, do they even waste their time trying to learn what size gloves you are? No, they'll just ask you what gloves you are, have you pick your own. Um, You know, does a surgeon like, the text to prep for him or does he want the residents to prep for him that's when you see the residents start prepping and then the the scrub nurse is like well yeah doc so-and-so likes her issues prep this way and then it's it's opportunity is the resident going to be like cool let me do it let me follow your advice or right yeah um but in some of it you know is is how did that nurse approach the resident were they rude were they like Mm -hmm. and then how was the resident so all these like different personality types and I just sit, that's one reason I love anesthesia because I'm sitting back here just watching all of it, taking yeah. it in. Like the psychology is just, it's just fascinating. Um, I've had nurses at the outside hospitals tell me like, oh, well, the surgeon likes this type of anesthesia or this. And I'm like, okay, like yeah. I, I appreciate it. But that's something that I'm okay to go head to head with the surgeon with. And I'll find out from him, like him or her, just checking, cool, well, well in this patient, this would actually be better. But I'm, I'm always receptive to feedback. Because I know, I and I assume that at the center of it is keeping the patient safe and helping the day go by smoothly. Yeah, definitely. I I, I would assume though everybody in that room 
could potentially have kind of a big ego. I mean, you think about a surgeon and um, an OR nurse who's been there for a long time and maybe a mm-hmm. scrub tech who knows that surgeon really, really well and knows exactly what to do. And like you're saying, I mean, the residents, they come in. That's something nursing I don't think is really aware of always is that the the resident is every month in a new place and trying to learn. Yeah. So it can be easy to be really frustrated with someone when you're just trying to get in, get out, you know, do your job. Um, it can be easy to kind of be frustrated and be like, oh, how do you not know that? But it's also kind of unfair when you're looking at someone who's maybe never even stepped foot in this facility before. <laughs> right. It, is just, it, it cracks me up because like looking at, you know, when nurses do preceptorship, which is what I think third or fourth year of um, the BSRN or BS pro, BSN programs, is that... It's it's hard for me now because mine was different. I've been a nurse for like twelve years. So Oh really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was like a baby baby when I started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you but you see like the nurses, the nursing students on preceptorship and they look like a literal gaggle of ducklings, you know, yeah. like they're still lost and they're learning how to do what the that's double checks on medications, they're on the floor and they just come in like 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 a herd. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of, it's the same thing, right? It's just, okay, these, these residents have been in school for four years longer, but every month it's a completely new environment. And then by the time, you know, for surgery residents, by the time they're second or third years, they've started to kind of repeat. They know the circulating nurses, they've built that rapport. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're nice uh, people, then they're, they're friends with the uh, OR nurses and scrub techs. If they've got some ego problems or a little off-putting mm-hmm. then you know maybe not so much but at least you are familiar with the system and that's half of the battle with you know the upper level residents and that's why they function so much better you know they, they know more of the medicine they know more about their surgical colleagues mm-hmm. and they know the system yeah the system that's a big part of it too because that can be it, it can make somebody um like you're saying like even like a nurse maybe who has like a little bit of an ego it can make that nurse be very like well how do you not know this very simple thing and it's like well they just don't know how this hospital works you know and that's like yeah. kind of a simple thing you could just help educate you know <laughs> yeah so then in the or you know the surgery happens there's a couple of timeouts and it's important to note i'm a big advocate part in part due to the ethics fellowship in the background I'm a huge advocate for anybody being able to speak up at any time. And there's been so many times where I've heard, you know, from the nurse or somebody that's kind of voiced a concern, but they kind of mumble it. And I'm like, stop. This concern was raised. Like, and I will amplify. If I hear somebody expressing concern, I will amplify your voice and back you up to whoever I need to, because I know you're doing out of concern for the patient. Um, And people can be frustrated at me. Like I'll, I'll take that. Um, And so I just try and back up whatever voice needs to be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important that if you see something wrong, that you say something before, you know, we go down a path that's, that's irreversible. Um, if something's got contaminated, you gotta tell, you gotta speak up because it's, it's all for a patient's safety. Definitely. Um, during, yeah. And during the case, the OR nurses are working with the, the surgeons and getting different devices that they need. A lot of times what happens is, you know, okay, we need blood emergently. And at my hospital, it just so happens that oftentimes when something's going horribly wrong, the nurse is tied up um, getting stuff for the surgeons. Mm-hmm. So situational awareness, look around. The nurse is busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can call the blood bank, so I'll just call the blood bank. Hey, can you all get blood ready? All right, cool. Mm-hmm. And then the nurse comes up being flustered like, 
uh, oh, I got to call Bloodbane. Went, no, no, it's cool. We, I called we him, but it's, it. it's fine. Yeah. So it's all like the whole team, you know, and then my residents are kind of, they don't know, because where I trained in the different residency programs, residents are expected to, in anesthesia, do 100% of the things by themselves. Mm-hmm. And as far as teaching goes, I do t- try and teach at independence. But when crap's hitting the fan, I, I make it clear to them that, hey, we're working together. Mm-hmm. And you do that, I'll do this, and we'll get through this together. So my residents are kind of uncertain, like, oh, hey, like, did I do something wrong because I didn't call the blood banker because I didn't do this or because I didn't mm-hmm. get this IV? And I'm like, no, just, you you know, you get the IV, I'll call the blood bank, and, and we should work together as a team. That's what I try and, and foster in mm-hmm. the residents that I work with and the OR nurses that I work with. Yeah, that's that's a great approach because I I've been there, right? I've I've felt like, especially maybe during a code or something, like should I be the one doing all? It, it's like especially if you're new, you kind of take the burden of everything on on yourself. Right. And just hearing that from somebody who's a little bit above you can just make you feel like, okay, no, I don't have to do everything. There's a reason why there's a team here. I did my part. Yeah. I can go home feeling like I did my job today. You know. Um, so let's talk about a conflict that you had with nursing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put you yeah, on the spot. <laughs> I had quite a few actually. So, because like, I'm not one that worships nurses like, Oh my God, they're God's gift to earth. Mm-hmm. I don't worship physicians that we're right. God's gift to earth. We're just freaking people. And yeah. we each have a job to do. And that's all like same doctors yeah. do your job. Nurses do your job. That's what I expect. And so, I mean, I'm like a really nice guy once I get to know you, but usually at work, I'm just kind of like, like, no crap. I just expect us to all do our jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, I, I generally have a really good uh, relationship, especially in uh, residency with the, the CTICU nurses, best nurses I've ever worked with. Um, but I learned early on in residency how different things can be perceived. Um, what's her name? Her name was Jessica. So I was uh, in pre-op. And I went to see this patient and it's such a stressful time. Um, I think you've talked about this in previous episodes in terms of nurses giving a report. There's different times in the day where it's just tough and everybody's trying to get to the patient. Mm -hmm. So before surgery, you know, the OR time is 730. And if you're late, you're going to get dinged and eventually you get in trouble. So there's so many things to do. Set up the OR, go consent the patient, start the IV, all of this. And we're all trying to get to the patient at the same time. And Jessica, we're, we're friends now. (laughs) <laughs> or we've been friends like the whole time. Uh-huh. I, I just had to learn this this one quick thing. She was in there. She was in the room talking to the patient. Um, but when I poked my head into the curtains, like she wasn't talking to him. So I waited a couple seconds and there was no communication going on. You know, there's a, there's a pre-op check sheet mm-hmm. or flow chart that the pre-op nurses are filling out. So I waited like a good 10, 15 seconds. There was no communication happening. So I rolled up. I was like, hey, Mr. Smith, how are you doing? Steven, I'm the anesthesia resident. I'm working with you. And as I started talking out the corner of my eye, um, Jessica was typing on this computer on wheels, like one of the cows. And I just see the cow just kind of ghost rider drift <laughs> all the way across the bay. And, and she got so pissed off. She just shook it and was like, I'm done. Like, like he freaking interrupted me. And I was like, oh my God. I have pissed off Jessica. Um, so I finished my interview. I talked to the patient. And then like later on in the day, I went and found her. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I thought you were done. Uh, 
talking to the patient and uh, you know, I won't let it happen again. And you know, she was nice about it. And she's like, yeah, you know, accept my apology. And from that point on, I'm, and it's to this day, I make it a point to say, is it okay if I talk with the patient? Mm-hmm. And that, that alone has just helped alleviate so many conflicts. Everybody feels heard. Everybody feels respected because it's happened to me also where I'm in the middle of consenting somebody. And I mean, probably every other week people assume that I'm not the doctor. So I'll be in the middle of assuming uh, of, uh, I'll be in the middle of consenting my patient. And then somebody just walks in and starts talking. I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of a very important process that you just interrupted. So I learned that from, from Miss Jessica and, and we're friends and we, we moved on past it. You made up, you moved on. But all, and all the packy nurses knew, like they were, they were laughing because they, they yeah. like some of them saw it and then the story had spread. Like, oh my God. <laughs> Talk about more. You just said that you get mistaken for not being the doctor regularly. I mean, can, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. You know, I think just being, whether it's being young, whether it's being black, um, I don't fit people's image of what a physician looks like. Mm-hmm. In residency, I actually grew locks. So I had uh, locks down to my shoulders. And I think, you know, I just didn't meet the typical description of a physician. So yeah, I, I understand it. I get it. Um, when you're used to seeing things a certain way, we all have our internal biases. And that's how we live our lives. So I look at those as kind of teaching opportunities. And one, I've just expanded somebody's concept of what a physician looks like. So I think that's the the good side. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on how the interaction goes. If they're just confused or surprised, great. That's a teaching opportunity. If they're kind of uh, rude or or aggressive about it, then Mm -hmm. then, I don't know. I got to, you know, I'm a little uh, spicy in in response, but, you know, respectfully, but I'm like, no, I am the physician and I will kind of affirm Mm-hmm. Uh, or reaffirm my my role. Does how does it how does it make you feel when that happens? Do you have like an emotional response? Um, it it depends on again how they relayed their frustration or dissatisfaction. Um, an emotional response, not not so much. Sometimes it's it's a surprise because I'm not expecting that. You know, in the middle of everything else that I'm thinking about, it's like, oh okay. Um, you know, they don't they don't think I'm a doctor. All right, we'll mm-hmm. handle this and move past it. Sometimes, you know, if it's going to present a barrier to care or there's a lack of trust or now I need to go get my attending because they said they wanted somebody else to do the anesthesia, then that's uh, pretty frustrating. And, mm-hmm. and it's un- unfortunate that this occurs. Sometimes there's a lack of trust. Yeah. But but it did work out uh, a couple of times. Again, the CTICU, the cardiothoracic mm-hmm. ICU, I, those nurses were the best nurses I've ever worked with. And I remember one weekend, we had one of those difficult families, you know, that mm-hmm. the wife's in the hallway, like, antagonizing the nurses. Where's the physician? I haven't seen the doctor, blah, blah, blah. And I was on 24-hour call that weekend. I think I had, I don't know, 18 or 20 patients. And I was literally standing right next to them, wearing a white coat, wearing scrubs, typing into the computer on wheels. Uh, and I was making my way down to see each patient after rounds. Mm-hmm. I was literally standing right next to this patient or this patient's wife. And she's like, I want to see the physician now. And she kept going on and on. And the nurses looked at her and they looked at me and saw I was busy. They're like, okay, he'll be with you shortly. And she's <laughs> like, went back in the room and waited. And like, I was able to finish 
rounding and then I came back and talked to her, but I'm like, yeah, like, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> like covert over here. Yeah. yeah. So it all, yeah, the relationships, uh, can make or break you in, in medicine. Definitely. I, I think that's why it's so important. Your podcast is so important. And that's really why I wanted to talk to you. Um, because it, I mean, it's really important that we change the idea of what somebody is going to, um, their preconceived bias about what a doctor looks like or what a nurse looks like, or, you know, um, so I, I really applaud you for your initiative and I love the podcast and, um, keep up the good work. I'm, I'm so happy. Happy. Thank you for your, uh, your page is holy crap. Like it's unfortunate that we can't have civil conversation about yeah. this because people just go far right with everything. Like I, I see the responses that you post in your stories and like, sometimes I'm triggered, but I'm like, Oh my yeah. God. Like Me too. I mean, I, I have, there are two people kind of like trolling me right now. <sighs> One of them is not even in healthcare and is like the wage gap isn't real and all this stuff. And, yeah, I, saw and I was like really upset about it. Like I was really, that's why I had to take a break last night. I was like, this is getting to be a little much for me. Um, <laughs> and then I just was like, you know what? I'm going to let other people deal with these, these two guys. Like I'm just gonna screenshot exactly what they're saying and, and, and put it. And my approach too is, like, I don't, again, I don't like the whole, like, oh, you said one thing and now like, we're all going to jump on you like a mob. I don't, I I don't like that either. Right. So yeah. it's like, I'm trying to find a balance of like, how can I open up discussion and actually try to reach you, <laughs> you know, without yeah. you, because the second people start to just attack and swarm and then it's like the person pulls back and they're just like reaffirmed in their own beliefs, you know? So I'm, tr I'm really trying to like reach out and be inclusive, but also be like, this is messed up what you're saying. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's that. There was the, with the, the Ohio state university thing with the, Oh my God. Crazy. Crazy. Cause that guy, like I tell everybody, I tell every single person take what i say with a grain of salt when i'm teaching my residents i'm like mm -hmm. it doesn't sound right look it up yeah but that like that like the the momentum just oh my it, god it just oh my god it, it was crazy and then that you did you see it was on that what is it nurse meme page or whatever posted something about doctors about like how like, oh, you guys have gotten really good at treating patients from a computer. Yeah. Like you're not going in the rooms and whatever. And then Eddie Joe, I don't know if you know him. Yeah. He like, I, I saw I think I I think I unfollowed that that page from something else that they'd done. I was like, I just can't take this. But I saw I saw your screenshot. I couldn't see what else he said though. Yeah. So I I had previously unfollowed them about something totally unrelated. And sometimes he'll post stuff that's like borderline, like sexism. Yeah. And, and like, so then he posted that about the doctors and like, listen, we had doctors who didn't go in the room during COVID. Um, but by and large, we had, we had doctors who got COVID. We had doctors who were in the room. Some of the MICU consult docs, they were in the room more than anybody. So it's not fair no. to just say it as a generalization either. You know, that was like, I thought that was really unfair. And then Eddie Joe posted and he actually called me. His wife is a nurse. He loves yeah. nurses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eddie, he's very, very, very pro. He's more pro nurse than I am. I'm kind of yeah, like, all right, everybody just do your he, freaking job. He 
loves the nurses. And then they they swarmed on him. It was like oh, crazy. No. Yeah, and he called me. He was like, did I say something wrong? I was like, you didn't say anything wrong. Everybody will move on. It's like it's like a day of outrage, yeah. and then they move on. They don't care anymore. Yeah. But it's, it, is, it is so nuts. I mean, this is, it's just not a good medium to have these conversations. Like, these are just so frustrating that a lot of times I... I, uh, I, I just can't, I can't follow them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So insane how quickly, how big the outrage is and then how quickly it it goes away. And that's what the culture is. And then I think a lot of people don't realize how much variability each hospital has, because I've been at pretty much academic centers. Uh, but you get out into community hospitals and like I started moonlighting at a community hospital. It's like, holy crap. There's no, there is no ICU doc here overnight. It's the electronic guy. Right. Uh, it's the EICU and then like the other hospitals where um, nurses have a lot more autonomy or like where their positions are not in house overnight. Like that was mm-hmm. kind of a mind was mind blowing to me mm-hmm. because teaching hospitals is always a position in house. Right. But there's other hospitals where there there is there's not. nobody. And yeah. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. And so those nurses have more autonomy. They they do more stuff and right. and it's just like that clash of culture that people can't understand or accept that things are vastly different. Yeah. It's just crazy. I don't know. I hope it, I feel like it's like ramping up. I hope it kind of evens out and like, I don't know. It seems like that's not happening. Yeah. And you're, you're kind of getting in, you're stuck in the middle of it. Kind of because yeah, I don't want to get, I, I don't want to take a, a stance, but I just want my thing to be my thing. That's what I want. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You're doing great things. I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. trying to help. I don't piss off. Uh, I'm yeah. not the center of a Dr. Pimple Popper scandal. Same, same. I mean, even for me, um, coming, coming at it, like the doctor isn't the worst person and the nurse isn't perfect. Even for me, it's scary sometimes. And it just closes the dialogue. Like, <laughs> and then there's the, the docs that are like, I love nurses. Nurses are the best. Nurses are God's gift to earth. And I'm like, okay, it's somewhere, it's somewhere in between. They don't even mean that shit. They don't even mean it. Like I shouldn't have to kiss somebody's ass to have them provide good patient care. They shouldn't have to kiss mine. Like we should all just exactly be professional. I think I'm, I'm realizing I'm very naive because I just assume we're all going to be professional and do our jobs. I mean, unfortunately too, for me, sometimes some of this is like rhetoric. Oh, the, this year, I know that it's doctor day, but like this year, I think we should give this one to the nurses and like, blah. and I'm like, you know, this doctor does not mean that shit. Like, stop, stop. It's like, if it's a compliment, like, 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 yeah. It's like, actually that insults me more. I'm like, if yeah. you have some shit, say it, that's fine. But like, don't yeah. like pretend. And cause it makes me feel like you think I'm dumb that I need like, right. Yeah. Cause if you took a private nurse's chat and saw what they said about physicians and if exactly. you took a private physician's chat. So the fact that Ohio state's textbook went viral. Yeah. Like, do you not think that's what people are saying? Most residents think like, like, but yeah. you're upset because so it's, uh, I, I, Abby, I'm on the fence though, about one topic and that is how people treat medicine as, you know, those, those, uh, sayings like medicine is for people like can't see themselves doing anything else or whatever. Like they kind of make it all like a calling, um, or like, like, yeah, like a humanitarian, like, like mm-hmm. you have to be, you, you can't do medicine for the money. Right. 
in, I don't fully subscribe to that. Medicine, nursing, all of those, in my opinion, are jobs, they're trades. And that, yes, you may be more altruistic when you go into that, but you shouldn't talk down to people that are like, like, oh, I'm here to be, I think there's a balance that I'm wondering about talking about, but I don't know if I'll get castigated for exploring that space. I think that already is happening, honestly. I don't think you should feel like you can't talk about it. I, I've seen other people, because at least when I started nursing, it was that older generation of nurses that I was trained by. It was like the baby boomer generation. And they're, they're, the culture of their generation is right. like martyrdom. I mean, really, exactly. especially with nurses. And it was very much like we don't take our lunch break. We don't take vacation. We don't know. I'm here for the patient. And they would literally break their backs to provide care to their patient. And with our generation, I think we've all tried to realize that like, well, one, that just leads to burnout. It's not sustainable, right? Yeah. And then you find these really jaded providers who don't care about the patient anymore because no one asked them, you know, and and also no one asked you not to take your lunch. You can take it. You have a contract. Do you have like this is better for everyone. So um, I think that conversation is already happening. Like people now I see more making fun of like nursing is a calling, you know, it's like. No. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for everything. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope to talk soon. Maybe if you want to come back on, we can we can reschedule. We can do this again sometime. Yeah, no. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. I just uh, thanks for highlighting the show, the Black Nighters podcast. So season one is done and I am starting to record episodes for season two, which hopefully should come out in September. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the big product I'm working on. And it should be a little more diverse in terms of I've got some dentists and trying to get some veterinarians and some other uh, health professions to have some more representation. In addition to that, I'm trying to delve more into medical ethics. So on my Instagram, Stephen Bradley MD, uh, I'm trying to put out weekly episodes where I discuss different topics in medical ethics or different ethical scenarios based upon what's happening in the news media. So definitely check that out if you're interested in uh, medical ethics. Definitely. That's a great idea. I'm excited to listen. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day. All right. right, Bye. bye. Thank you, everybody. Please stay safe out there. Thank you so much for listening. Um, If you like the show, please rate us. Please subscribe. We really need the love right now. This is a new new podcast, new idea. We really um, need some support. Um, If you have any topics, please email us at rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you.